This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. I know, we're just Mm. born multitaskers. Anyway, welcome to another episode of the Fertility (laughs) Podcast. (laughs) Oh, it does feel like there's a lot of stuff going on. I've just been chatting about losing random items from my shopping because I've put them, for example, a bag of sage leaves with my cat food. My macadamia nuts were left in the shopping bag. I mean, these are first world problems. Maybe yours is a product like a product of lockdown, a byproduct of lockdown madness, like my utter meltdown that I had the other day, which I told you about when a friend cancelled on me at the last minute of going out for my first drink in a very long time and I completely lost my shit. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> we'll, we'll just go mad and put a, an E on the rating for this podcast. When you told me this story, I have yeah. to confess, I was really trying to picture you losing your SHIT and I, I, I imagine I you are quite gesticulative with your arms. Is that right? I am naturally gesticulative with my arms. So yeah. So when, so when you're losing it, is is it more vocal or is it more? Ah. It's a bit of the both. I think I threw something. I think I threw my socks into the laundry basket with quite a lot of veracity. Um, and, and oh come on! And my husband is still saying to me because I think I was like, but you know, when you're crying like a child, and I was Aww. I was doing that, and it was completely and utterly irrational. My meltdown. I don't know where it, it came from, but I think it was pent up lockdownness. Matter. I think so. Mm. And we were due to meet. We had a plan. Our photographer yeah. was lined up. We were going to have our pictures taken. You've had your hair done, haven't you? Because it was around yeah. you getting your hair done. I haven't had my hair done. I don't think I'm going to be able to get my hair done. I might be able to get my hair done before we get to meet because we've had to move our getting together on Yeah, we a bit. have. But mm. it's coming, isn't it? It feels like, I mean, my my calendar's getting kind of booked up. It's exciting. I'm making plans. I know. It is nice, isn't it? And I'm what I'm doing at the moment is kind of contacting friends and going, come on, let's get a date in the diary for to see each other as soon as we can and have people to stay as soon as we can. That's the next big yeah, thing. Um, exactly. So yeah, it's it's going to be nice, and especially... It feels... Yeah, it does feel good, doesn't it? Feels like it's coming. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about something that I watched last week um, to just throw it out there because I was having a conversation with a potential coaching client and one of the things we were talking about was control because control is such a huge thing when you're trying to conceive, mm. isn't it? It's like a thing that you are adamant that you want to have control over and you don't. Mm. And especially if you're used to having control in your life. And it just got me thinking about this particular thing because I'd had this conversation and then that evening, my other half was like, let's watch this. And a friend of ours had recommended it to us. We basically watched this Netflix documentary called Seaspiracy. Okay. Now, if you currently eat fish and you are currently trying to get your head around what you can do in terms of climate change and the impact that human behavior is having on the world, watch this documentary, because I tell you now, I don't think I'm going to eat fish again. Oh, and I never thought I would say something like this. Because what you learn in this documentary, there's a whole host of things, but one of the things is just how much bycatch waste there is from the fishing industry. It is so immense that it's shocking. Oh. And I'm just putting this out there because 
when it comes to what you're trying to do in your world, when you're trying to have a baby and the things that you're trying to control, there obviously are things that you can do, lifestyle changes. And I wonder whether that little climate crusade that so many of us wonder how we could be on is something that could distract your attention a little bit. And I'm not saying get obsessive with it, but watch something like that and have a little think maybe about whether that's something that you could get frustrated about when you can't manage the frustration that you might be feeling about trying to have a baby. It just might divert the annoyance and the frustration a little bit. It's just something I thought. Mm. So It's controlling the things that you can control, isn't it? And maybe that is something that you can control those types of choices and making those choices. I'm not going to watch it because I love fish (laughs) and I would, I know if I watched it, then that would be me stopping fish and I'm absolutely not going to do that. So um, yeah, I, I, I also do love fish and I, 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 I should stop because I could go on about it. I was so taken aback by what I saw in this documentary. So um, if you watch it, please do let me know. You can um, get in touch with me on my Insta. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And if you don't watch it, then tell me on at your fertility journey because I'm not going to be watching Fair it. Fair enough. We can, we can agree to disagree on this one. Also, mm-hmm. we'd love it if you could spend just two minutes giving this podcast a review. Do you know, Kate, I read the other day, there are now one million podcasts. No way. One million podcasts. That is a lot. I mean, of course, the podcast scene is ever growing, but it means that what you put in your ear holes is even more important. And what other people think is good to put in their ear holes is even more important. So you saying that you like this podcast helps them know it's worth listening to. So we'd love it if you could, if you could share your thoughts. This episode that we're going to be sharing with you is about secondary care because we've been talking about the different stages that we hope that you are considering whilst you're you're trying to conceive and the different things to think about. We were, we were focusing on male fertility last week and in, in terms of the conversation that was going on on our socials, we will always be keeping you updated as much as we can. There was, there was people asking for links to research papers and they will always, where they can be, be in the show notes. So whenever you listen to an episode, please do look at the show notes because that's where there is more info. Um, but when it comes to secondary care and what it should look like, Kate, can you just explain a bit more? Because we are going to be talking to our lovely resident expert, Dr. James Nicopoulis. Mm. So secondary care, what we mean by that is when you get your referral from the GP and you see the fertility doctors or the gynecologists, whoever you're seeing in your clinic. And that's the first step that you'll make. And that's where they'll start to look at things in a little bit more detail. So you might have a scan, you might have discussion around um, further investigations like a high cosy or a HSG. You might have some further blood testing. So that's the kind of types of treatment and investigations. And there's, there's more that you can have at the secondary care stage. So that's not IVF, but it's a secondary care. And what's really important is that even if you're not entitled to IVF, because perhaps you have another child or you don't have um, NHS provision in your trust, you are still entitled to referral to secondary care. And I really want to make that really clear because I get really frustrated by a lot of my patients that I hear saying, my my GP won't refer me because I have a child or whatever. That's not, you're not entitled to tertiary care, IVF, but you are entitled to secondary care. So if people are listening and they've had literally what you've just said happen to them, What's the best course of action? How can they push it forward? Um, I think being there's well, various ways. Being persistent with your GP is is one. Um, 
quoting the nice guidelines clearly is another looking at your trust policy because whilst i've said that every trust does have their own local policy so google your trust fertility policy see what it says and if it says that you're entitled to that then you've got a good leg then to go back to gp and say right this is this is really clear here please can you refer me um, if if the, you can't find that detail in there, you could contact your local commissioners within your trust. If you're struggling with that, you can contact PALS, who are the patient advocacy and liaison service, and they will help you put your point further if you're struggling. All right. Again, check out the show notes. We'll put some links there for you. Let's let's hear what James um, has to say on it as well, because we, we gave him a good old grilling, didn't we, on the matter? We did. We did indeed. Yeah, it was good, good to chat to him. And, you know, it was good to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. In this episode of the Fertility Podcast, we have our resident expert, Dr. James Nikopoulis, to talk a bit more about this kind of next stage, what we're really just trying to give you as much as we can in terms of things to think about. And one of the kind of next stages is is really, if you've had tests with your GP, before finding out you need to have fertility treatment, it's having more tests with a gynecologist. Is that how you'd describe it, Kate, in the conversations that you're having Absolutely. I think you get to that point where if you're over the age of 35 and you've been trying for six months or under the age of 35 and trying for a year, that really the next step is to move forward and get some, get a referral to a fertility specialist so you can get the right advice that's pertinent for you. And I think that can sometimes be the the difficult difficulty in making that decision. And also with regards to the six month and year point is that the GP is on board with that because I frequently see that it is often more like two years, which is disappointing. Because that seems to be the thing. People are dismissed, aren't they? Mm, definitely. That's something I see all the time. And and I, I, I struggle and try to empower women to actually go back to their doctor and say, actually, the nice guidelines say this. Please explain to me why I, I need to wait for two years. And it, it's something I see a lot. So, James, from your point of view, if people are listening and they they've done this that they're, they're following our guidance it's still not happening they're still trying and nothing's happening that conversation about a fertility specialist can you just elaborate a bit more about what people can expect and how they can that kind of neck that secondary care what that looks like for people yeah it's, it's, a, it's a really important topic because you know as you guys were saying what you don't want to do is get to the end of a year or two years that's almost been forced on you and then find out there was a problem that's been stopping you trying that whole time and that's really important because emotionally that would be an awful position to be in as well as the impact in terms of you know time loss success rates um and it's not to disparage gps because they will predominantly do the right test but sometimes there are some better tests that could be done that can't be done um, in primary care through no fault of theirs um, and yes sometimes there's a level of expertise that perhaps um, a gynecologist will have that, that a GP won't um, and understandably they'll want to reassure and say yep you're fine keep trying but we want to make sure that you have all the information to ensure that that is the correct advice if, if it's valid um, so I think seeing a gynecologist in second care in secondary care, ideally a gynecologist within a centre that's got a special interest in fertility, you know, even more so, I think is key. And, and James, do you see frequently what I was talking about is that women come to you a lot later because there's been a delay in referral? Yeah, I think well, there's, I think there's a couple of areas. Firstly, there's a delay in referral from GP um, to secondary care. 
and often frustratingly, there's a delay in secondary care once a decision has been made that IVF is needed um, in terms of time scale to get funded NHS care, which is really frustrating. Um, it, it, it happened before, but obviously COVID is, is a big factor as to why that's slightly worse now than it was before. So somebody's been kind of told that the, the next step would be to find a specialist. Is that something they can expect that that they'd be referred through the NHS or is that something they're then taking to their own hands to go private or it depends on, on time frame? No, I think there's, there, there, there shouldn't be a reason why they shouldn't get um, that on the NHS. I think there's you know, lots of very good centres that, that have um, specialist facility clinics and the ideal scenario is that a GP should be referring you to one of those. Now listen, yes, of course you can always seek a private opinion as a second opinion or if there is a significant delay but the ideal scenario is to, is to get seen on the NHS. Okay so you've got the referral and then what does that look like what are we what are we gonna what are we expecting to to find out what kind of tests are going to happen? Well increasingly clinics are trying to do a one-stop shop so that everything's done in 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 one place or in one step or at least you have all the results so you're having a, a review with all the results to hand. Um, so clearly most people would have already had a semen analysis, but inevitably they'll be asked for a repeat, which I think is sensible, just to make sure that you know the first one was accurate. Um, thereafter, um, a lot of GPs will still be doing FSH as a marker of egg reserve, which is okay, but we know it's affected by um, where you are in the cycle. We know it varies between cycles. We know it's an indirect measure of your egg reserve because it's a hormone that your brain produces rather than directly the ovary. Um, and sometimes your egg reserve can be quite low um, before your FSH begins to actually creep up. So we know we know that FSH, although it's okay, is not the best test in the world because it varies within a month. It varies between months. It's an indirect measure of your egg reserve because it's a hormone produced by your brain. Um, and it's not a particularly good witness because it takes a couple of years for the FSH begin to go up even if your egg reserve isn't great. So the key is to get an AMH done as a much better marker of your egg reserve. Um, the third key area is going to be a scan for a number of reasons. Firstly, again, to assess your egg reserve by counting how many follicles you recruit every month because, as you, as you guys know, the more you've got in your stores, the more you're recruited every month. It's a really good measure. And also to rule out any obvious pelvic pathology, so fibroids, polyps, perhaps uh, an endometrioma that may also be useful of information that may be impacting on outcome. So, and to be honest, you know, if, you, if you're ever going to do one test, probably the, the scan is the key test because it gives you so much information. And at that point, either prior to seeing somebody or more likely after that first consultation, the next assessment will be okay. If the sperm's okay, the egg reserve's okay. Are you ovulating regularly with a progesterone check if you haven't had it done before? And perhaps what, um, secondary care will do that your GP won't do is to is to assess your tubal patency to see if your tubes are open. And classically, the the gold standard is probably to do a laparoscopy. Um, so have a look in the tummy with the side of camera. Uh, have a look inside the tummy with the camera. Um, see what's going on. Insert some dye. Watch the dye spill. But it is a general anaesthetic. You know, if you're otherwise fit, well, no other gynecological symptoms and no risk factors, it's probably unnecessarily invasive. So in most people, the first step will be a Hycosi or an HSG, so either a scan or an X-ray and injecting some dye in. Um, much less invasive, a little bit uncomfortable, but um, an outpatient procedure. Uh, and that's a really good initial screening test. So most people will have a Hycosi or an HSG first. 
And only if you've got other symptoms that suggest endometriosis or something that you can do something about, would you go straight for a laparoscopy? And you say, um, James, most people will have the high cosy or HSG. Um, I'm finding very much that trusts in their um, fertility um, policies will often only do that if clinically indicated. So if perhaps they've had a sexually transmitted infection in the past, and then sometimes, you know, women are perhaps going forward without having had that done. Is that your experience? I've got to say, I, obviously, I, I haven't now been in the NHS for a little while, uh, but that was never my experience. I think, you know, if you come to a fertility clinic and you, you know, if you've got a partner who's asiospermic or incredibly low sperm count, yes, you've got your course. So why inflict a test unnecessarily um, on somebody? But in the absence of that, I think it's a, it, it remains a key test because what we don't want to do again is to not do that, reassure somebody who goes off and carries on trying for a year only to then find out. Because chlamydia, for example, you know, pelvic infections can be silent. So it's really important to exclude that. So just to recap, if when you're thinking about your, your past, there have been any kind of STIs that, that, you know, maybe it was with your partner or not, and they're always going to be awkward conversations, aren't they? But they are things to think about when you're trying and struggling to conceive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other things are perhaps a, a complicated appendix procedure, a ruptured appendix that could perhaps cause adhesions, you know, or any significant pelvic surgery can cause adhesions and can potentially impact on, on, on tubal patency. So it's, you know, all those things that are risk factors that we should be considering. And I suppose the downside of not doing a laparoscopy, even though obviously, as you say, it's a, a general anaesthetic, is we're perhaps not picking up endometriosis are we in the way that obviously we can with laparoscopy but we can't with other procedures absolutely and i do um it's interesting interesting because sometimes i do think that um although we said that there's a concern that you don't do laparoscopy and you don't do an hsg when you should i do sometimes think that some people and some trusts because ivf is such a distant option in terms of time scale feel the need to do something and occasionally actually do a laparoscopy when the chances are it's not going to give us any information. So that does happen occasionally because there's a desire to do something. Um, I think if there is any suggestion in terms of painful intercourse, painful periods, anything on a scan that's suggestive, then I would do it. I think in the absence of that, I think probably on balance, it's overkill. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the evidence of laparoscopy and treating endometriosis improving natural fertility is there but the data isn't great so you know it's 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 sort of assessing each couple individually okay so if people have had they've gone and they've had those tests and they come back clear no problem and they're still trying and they're still not getting pregnant what kind of time frame do we think then before we go and ask again for something else to investigate well i I think the the only other caveat to that and it's probably what you won't get um in most nhs clinics and and some private clinics is probably you know in the absence of any other cause of subfertility especially in the younger couples or younger individuals um an assessment of sperm dna comes into play because we know that 30 percent of couples still suffer from unexplained infertility and it might just be that you know we look back in 50 years and think what were we missing Or, or it might be that we're all trying a little bit older but we are finding that a proportion of those couples have got high levels of sperm dna damage um, so my inclination is that in, in, in the younger couples, without any other cause, I'd be encouraging them to get a sperm DNA test sooner rather than later. Again, so that, so that we're not in a position two years later, possibly two IVF cycles later, 
when we think actually this is a factor we should have been ICSI all along or we should have been seeing a urologist all along to improve it. So that would be something I'd push for sooner rather than later. So let's just elaborate on that, on what that test will show. Um, and we have talked about male factor already. So we will link to that episode so you can have a look at some of the factors that can cause issues with sperm health. But what can that test highlight? In essence, what it looks at is, is how the genetic material is almost packaged in the sperm. If you've got the sperm genetic material packaged nicely, it shouldn't impact on fertility. If there's some unraveling of that genetic material, for want of a better phrase, we've seen from from, from studies that I've done with my colleague Jonathan Ramsey and other clinics uh, have shown that it can impact on natural fertility. It can also impact on IUI and IVF success rate, and then potentially doing ICSI can overcome that to a certain extent. If it's particularly high, then even ICSI doesn't completely overcome that. Potential causes are really tricky. You know, yes, it can be environmental in terms of smoking alcohol. Um, potentially an infection and potentially a varicocele, uh, but sometimes you don't find a cause. Uh, but it's important that you get that work up and try and try and eliminate things. And it's right to say that the, the sperm DNA fragmentation test isn't something on the NHS. That's, a, that's more likely to be something that you're going to have to go and pay for. That is the case. And probably to a certain extent, it's not unreasonable that that's the case, because although we're doing it more and more in terms of the absolute evidence, you know, in terms of to the standard at which the NHS need to be able to fund the test, we're probably not quite there, to be fair. When you say we're doing it more and more, do you think that's the Lister is doing it more and more? Uh, yeah, I think it, it is It is driven by different clinics. We're slightly unique in that we have a real multidisciplinary approach. We have a monthly multidisciplinary meeting with three fantastic urologists that we look at complicated cases that involve male factor. We work very closely with them. Men often get slightly forgotten in this, in that, yep, your sperm isn't good, crack on and do ICSI. And that's often the correct thing to do because you end up doing that anyway. But I think emotionally, you know, men need to have a proper workup to exclude any causes. Partly it's because the majority of us are uh, fertility doctors are gynecologists. Even people like me, you've done lots of research on male fertility. We're still gynecologists. And perhaps historically, most urologists who look after men haven't always had a special interest in fertility. So there's been a little bit of a, a vacuum there. And that's being filled now by fantastic urologists, but it has been an issue. And that, that joined up working is something that Natalie and I have talked about before and how we'd love to see that more in, in different in, in other clinics as well, which would be fantastic that it was across the board. Yeah, absolutely. It should be a key integral part of the service. So you've had these different tests and there's still no actual diagnosis and we're not going to talk too much about unexplained infertility because that is going to be another episode in itself but what if you still don't have a diagnosis is it just okay now you're going to have to go through the doors of the, the fertility clinic to to now look at what the next options are uh, yes yeah i think that, that is the case I, it's it's incredibly frustrating because we all want to understand why things are happening we all want an element of control and I think that it disappears when you get that diagnosis, and it's incredibly hard. So I think it's very it's very important that people are, are handheld through the process. They're offered the support that the counselling services, the clinic should should be offering um, uh, to them. Um, and thereafter, yes, I think realistically, the options then become, as I may have said to you before, I will then go through with somebody, okay, this is where you are. I've done all I can to, to investigate. These are your options. Your chances naturally at this point, age-wise, after this many years are X, 
and I'll try and quantify that the best we can. Plan B becomes IUI, your success rate is this. Plan C is IVF, your success rate is this. And then there's no right or wrong for some people. They'll want to go up the treatment ladder step by step. Increasingly, most people will want to do what gives them the best chance of success sooner rather than later. But it's making sure people are aware, you know, as you guys know, again, IUI is low cost, low hassle with a lower success rate. IVF is more costly, more hassle with a higher success rate. And, you know, one thing isn't always right for every couple. It's it's so interesting hearing the, the, the way that you approach it. And obviously, we're just talking to you and your one fertility specialist in one clinic and there's so many others and so many different experiences but I feel like I have conversations with quite a few predominantly women who feel that they're not being guided like you're guiding them they're not they're they're feeling that they're having to come with the information asking for this test asking for that test having spoken to someone like Kate or listen to a podcast like this which obviously is why we do it but it just feels like there's such an imbalance and I'm trying to I suppose understand more about that and as from a from a specialist point of view I, I know you're always probably going to say that you like people coming in being educated and and knowledgeable about it but why is there still such discrepancies in how people feel they're being guided through these initial stages i think it's there's, there's going to be a number of reasons firstly sometimes i'm not always happy that everybody comes in informed because sometimes they're informed by google god help us but um but more often than not people are informed by thankfully you guys and these sorts of podcasts so that's a whole different um dynamic um i think partly it comes from the different abilities of different trusts or clinics that you're seeing to offer certain services. So um, in some scenarios, IUIs might, might not be a service that's offered, so they won't be offered that. Um, it may well be, dare I say, the different levels of experience of the doctors they may see in clinics who may not have the confidence or the experience to quite map it out quite that way. Um, and also, clearly, you know, there are going to be limitations in funding that, that, that impact on this. Um, so I think th- those are going to be the keys and, and not, and not everybody, as I say, you know, not everybody quite gives the level of information they need for various reasons. Yeah. I mean, I always talk to my patients about <clears throat> the ability to become their own fertility advocate because they have to advocate for themselves to a certain extent. Um, and I completely agree with you with Dr. Google. I'm very much like, just don't step away from Google. You do not need to go to Google to answer your questions. There's so much better ways of getting information and getting informed and knowledgeable on what you need to ask for. Patients always are a little bit sheepish when they get their, their reams of paper out on their list. But I love that. I love it. Inevitably, what I'll say is if I've done a good job, I've answered most of those already. But I think it's really important to go into any consultation with a list of questions and ask them. And you because you need to leave that understanding, knowing your options, and with enough information to make the decision you need to make. So, you know, you should never be afraid of asking questions. And that is exactly why we encourage people to keep asking questions and why we have you available to answer them. Thank you, James, for uh, for that explanation. Um, I guess we're just uh, uh, hoping and encouraging that people take the time to think these things through, that they have maybe ticked the boxes along the way. It's almost like that pre-diagnosis checklist that we want to have put in place, um, ideally. So thank you for spelling that out. And hopefully we've given people more clarity. Ask the expert. 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 How can you improve progesterone levels? I have a slow BBT rise after ovulation and a short luteal phase. I'm a a bit of a temperature and ovulation kit skeptic because it's not always massively accurate. And sometimes I'm worried that it causes more stress and anxiety than is needed. 
I think the key, if there are any concerns there, is maybe just to get um, a, some cycle monitoring done. So just to scan through a cycle to really confirm exactly when you are ovulating, then checking your progesterone level a week after ovulation, and then seeing when your period comes. If you're not getting two weeks between ovulation and period, and your progesterone in the middle isn't great, then yes, that confirms there is an issue. And then potentially you could get some supplementation from ovulation to period. The evidence of benefit isn't great, but I think it's a good pragmatic start if that really is shown to be short. But it's probably just worth getting it checked out first. Ask the expert. 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 As always, loads to think about. And I think the thing that we're really, really trying to get across is that we want you to feel like you can ask these kinds of questions. But Kate, what tips would you give if people are feeling even more nervous about speaking up about some of the stuff that we've discussed? It is difficult. And especially when you go and see your GP, I think we all become a bit of a fumbling mess. And I know we've talked about this before. Um, I would say have your questions written down. Don't feel rushed. Take the time to ask what you want. Um, and take the time to ask for what you want. In my experience, if you're more empowered and more knowledgeable and you know what you're asking for, you're more likely to get it. There should be no reason why you're stopped and majority of GPs will be incredibly helpful and will refer you on no problem. Um, But it's sometimes just being persistent. And as we said, and as James said, you know, he likes seeing the information that people kind of come to him with. So keep it all in that file or that notebook and um, just just go for it. And you can always ask us, you know, you can always ask us if you've, again, reached a, a wall and we'll, we'll do our best to, to signpost you again. Don't forget to come and join our closed Facebook group, which is the Fertility Podcast on Facebook, which is where you can come and ask those questions. You can also put your questions forward for James, our expert, as you heard there. He's very lovely. And we have our brew at two every Thursday on Instagram, of course. And just to remind you, I'm at Fertility Potty on Instagram. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And before you go, that lovely review that you're going to do once you finish listening is hugely appreciated. Yes, it really is. Thank you so much, as always, for your time. And until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.